Hello, my friends. This is Stephen Roach, and you're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast, season eight, episode five. In this episode, I'm going to share a keynote that I gave at a private gathering of artists hosted by the Well Collaborative in Frederick, Maryland. My topic of disenchantment and the reemergence of wonder is a discussion of our human need for reverence and the artist's role in facilitating creative and spiritual encounter. If you'd like to go deeper into these and other related topics, you can join our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics and join artists from around the world exploring the relationships between art, faith, and culture. This is my keynote talk on disenchantment and the reemergence of wonder. You may have seen it, but on the Breath in the Clay Instagram, it was a quote from Mr. Rogers. He says, Our society is much more interested in information than wonder, in noise rather than silence. And I feel that we need a lot more wonder and a lot more silence in our lives. You know, and I would never presume to call myself a mystic. I'll call my podcast Makers and Mystics. But I'll never presume to call myself a mystic, but a mystic is someone who's not satisfied with information about God. A mystic is someone who aspires toward union with God. And so in that regards, I would hope that we would all become mystics, that we would all be those that aren't satisfied with information, but those that understand that we were created with an insatiable need for wonder. And if we don't pursue wonder through legitimate means, then we will pursue uh, substitute forms of wonder, addictions, vices, you know. See, we, we were created with a need for reverence that we can't shake. And what I want to share with you here is what I see, and this is just my part of the puzzle, you know, my, my piece to the mosaic. But around the turn of the century when the Enlightenment happened, this German sociologist named Max Weber came up with this phrase that he coined called disenchantment. And basically what disenchantment means is that society was moving away from being centered in religion and superstition and myth to being centered in reason and rationality and empirical evidence, right? And for a while, everybody thought that was cool because finally we can get out from under the thumb of religion, right? Finally, we can start thinking rationally. But I think having done that for a hundred years or however long now, and even after we've deconstructed, that's the famous word, if if you're a cool hipster and you still want to, And we're deconstructing, you know. Well, that's fine. Let's deconstruct, but let's reconstruct. See, the beautiful thing about artists is that destruction is a part of the creative process. Tearing things down is a part of the creative process. And you can look at it in terms of renovating your home. If you just isolate the moment that the guy with the hammer is bashing the wall in, it looks like destruction. It, It looks like demolition. 
But then if you move the lens out and you recognize the higher purpose of tearing down these walls is so that we can create a bigger space for more community, then you realize that what looks like deconstruction is really preparation. The Hebrew words in Genesis 1, where it talks about the earth was formless and void, tohu abohu. I love those. I'm going to name two characters in my next children's book, tohu and abohu. Don't steal it. I'm also going to name characters Flora and Fauna. I've got this whole world that's going to be, uh, it's called the year zero and two. Anyways, I'm going to let that rabbit make its way through the forest. So tohu and abohu, formless and void. When you dig into the Hebrew of that word, it actually, it contains an idea that something was destroyed before something was created, right? Or within it, it could hint at a prior creation that was destroyed before a new creation comes. That'll blow your mind if you start thinking about that. In the beginning, there was a beginning before the beginning, but we ain't going there either. But my point in saying all this is that there is value and there is merit to a deconstruction process. There are things that we adopt. Baggage, there's a difference between baggage and luggage. Baggage is what you brought with you. Luggage is what you're taking with you. <laughs> let's let go of our baggage, but let's take up our luggage. And so this idea of disenchantment meant that we were no longer just accepting the testimony of religion because it was the dominant narrative in the world. But see, religion and science are asking two different questions, so that's never been an issue for me. I've, I've never struggled with religion and science because science is answering the question how and religion is answering the question why. And if we ask science to ask us why any of this exists, then we're asking that we're not going to get the answer we're looking for. You know, but I think that, that those two worlds are meant to go together. All right, these are big concepts, but here's where I'm going with this. What I see happening is that we are in a place where the, the human heart is searching for re-enchantment. We're looking for re-enchantment. What does re-enchantment mean? And why am I talking to you about this? Because the artist is right at the center of the conversation of re-enchantment. Because re-enchantment acknowledges that we have a need for reverence. We have a need for something bigger than ourselves. We have a need to be a part of something that's larger, you know. Let me read you this quote here. This is from an author. Her name is Susie Gablick. And she wrote a book called The Reenchantment of Art. And she says, boredom, cynicism, and chronic materialism are all symptoms of our higher need for an ecstatic dimension in our life. Mm -hmm. She is wrestling with these questions that she's coming to the place of understanding that boredom, cynicism, chronic materialism are symptoms that the human heart has a higher need for an ecstatic dimension. I love that phrase. We have a need for an ecstatic dimension. And that's why I think that the path of the maker and the path of the mystic are one and the same. And that's why I feel like right now, 
that the artist is responding to the human heart's need for re-enchantment. And this is why maybe people are not going to come to church. They feel like they know that story, whether they do or not. But they will engage the glimmering work of an artist who points the way towards something beyond ourselves that maybe we're not ready to name yet, but we're willing to look at. Something that maybe we're not ready to name yet, but something that we are willing to look at. And what re-enchantment is not, let me say this right quick, what re-enchantment is not, is it's not putting new language on the old thing to fool people back into the old thing. (laughs) But what re-enchantment is, it's acknowledging the deeper need for reverence in the human heart. And it's being willing to sit with the mystery. I love that phrase so much because I think there's always been a pressure and an anxiety put on the church to have the answers. And I do believe, you know, I searched every available path spiritually. And as a perpetual seeker, I'm still a seeker, but the search is over, but now the exploration has begun. That's the way I say it. But as someone who searched every spiritual path that I could be presented with, Jesus has satisfied the depths of my need for reverence and and my need to touch something bigger than myself in a way that nothing else ever had. I could tell you stories about sitting with Sufis in Muslim tea houses and playing music to their worship songs to Allah and, and something in my spirit just said, this isn't where I want to, to give my praise. And I didn't even know why I felt that way. <laughs> but I went in the bathroom and I just said, hey, Jesus, I kind of want to give my worship to you. So when I go back out there, we got a little secret that I'm worshiping you right here. One of my favorite things in scriptures is in the in the Gospel of Mark, where it said, Jesus appeared to them in a different form. He appeared to them in a different form. What did that mean, you know? We can't get too comfortable with our metaphors. We can't get too comfortable with our forms. We can't get too comfortable with what we know about God. Because if God is infinite, then we can't get too comfortable. There's always a new facet. And our invitation as artists is to abide in that place of wonder, of perpetual astonishment, of humility. Meister Eckert, I love him. He was a 13th century mystic. Of course, they thought he was a heretic and about chopped his head off back then. And now everybody thinks he's awesome. What if the art that we're making is not for this generation? What if the art that is bubbling out of your heart that you have no explanation for and you have no prototypes to follow and you have no one to encourage you in, what if it's because the art you're making is Jesus in a different form that three generations down the road after we're gone, somebody will get it? Because they didn't get Meister Eckert in the 13th century, but now in modern times, many people do. But he said, start every morning as a beginner. 
When Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom. You won't even see it. You won't even know it's there. It's in our, the kingdom of heaven is all around us. But if we don't come with the eyes of a child, we'll miss it, you know? Well, the thing about childlikeness is that there's a certain humility that understands we don't understand. There's a curiosity that's insatiable that says, no, that's not a stick, that's actually a sword. What happens if? And that's where science and religion come together, is the questions. We may not agree on the answers, but we can enjoy the same questions. And I think, like I was saying earlier, that as believers, sometimes there's an anxiety to have all of the answers, but I feel our invitation is the invitation into the mystery. There's a man, I don't even know if he's alive anymore. His name was Alson. And Alson was this huge, he was Santa Claus. He would, he would work as Santa Claus on Christmas. But I would, I would see him walking down the street and he always, his, he had these thick eyebrows and this big beard and he always looked like this and he'd walk down. He'd come into the coffee shop in Greensboro and people would always warn me about Alson because Alson would chew up Christians and spit them out. And I said, oh, I want to know this man. Alison's story was that he was going to be drafted into the Vietnam War and he was scared and he begged God to spare him from the war. And he said, God, if you spare me from this war, I will go into the ministry and I will serve you. And so the day or so before he was drafted, something happened and he broke both of his legs and he didn't go to the war. And so he kept to his word and he went to seminary school for in Methodism, Methodist seminary school. And something happened in seminary school and they kicked him out. They didn't like his questions or something and they kicked him out. And so for the next 30 years of his life, Allison continued to study the Bible with a root of bitterness. And he, he knew every dumb thing that Christians believed and he knew how to prove everybody wrong. And I... I said, Holy Spirit, I really want to be friends with this man. He was a poet and an artist. And so I became friends with Allison, and I would sit with him. And he would talk to me about Adam's first wife, Lilith. <laughs> and every time he would speak and I would want to give my little Christian answer, I just felt that little hand on my shoulder and I said, shh, sit with the mystery. You do not have to defend me. What a freedom to not have to defend God to the world. God's a big God. We don't have to defend God. So for two years of my life, I would go to the coffee shop and I would sit with Allison and I would let him hurl his questions at me. And I baffled him because I never answered him but I told him that he had strengthened my faith after every time we met. And I was like, Allison, thank you because you have shown Jesus to me today. <laughs> he didn't get so pissed off. 
<laughs> and we sat there and we became really good friends. And one day, this is around the time that Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ came out. And I saw Allison walking down the street and I, I picked him up and I had to scooch the seat all the way back for him to get in the car. And I said, hey man, you need a ride? He said, yeah. So he got in the car and I could tell he was more disturbed than usual. I was like, man, what's going on? He's like, he's like, I just watched The Passion of the Christ. And he was mad and he said, after it's all said and done, I don't trust the people from the Council of Trent. I don't trust the Apostles' Creed. I don't, how do I know that they chose the right books to go into the Bible and I know there's a third letter to the Corinthians that we don't have and so how can I trust what man has passed down to me? But when I see that crucified man and he busted open weeping, he said, I cannot deny that there's just something right about that. And he grabbed me by the shoulder and I'm like, <laughs> and he was like, pray for me. <laughs> so I pulled the car over and I prayed for this man. And do you realize that it took two years of building relational equity to gain the authority in his life to pray for him that one day? Because I sat with the mystery. I cultivated the art of listening. And I feel like that's where we are in culture right now. Is that you and I have been invited to sit with God in the mystery, to cultivate the art of listening, and to build community with one another because we need one another desperately. I need you. I do. But what's so beautiful is that we're going to see a generation of Allisons who followed God, broke their legs, couldn't walk anymore. And then one day he will reveal himself in the way that he desires to reveal himself. And then we get to be there to say the prayer with them that invites them back into relationship with Jesus. I've been studying dirt for a while. You guys have probably heard me say this a million times. You can go digging around. <laughs> no pun intended. I thought it was funny. You can go digging around in the podcast, in the soil of Makers and Mystics, and you'll find one way back there, before I even knew how to spell podcast, called the metaphysical something another of, uh, something another of dirt. And it's, just type in dirt in the search bar on the website. You'll find it. Anyways, so I started thinking like, okay, well... If, if God formed us out of the soil, uh, out of the, the clay, out of the dirt, uh, maybe there's a mystery there like, that I should explore. Anyway, I won't take you through that whole bit, but you can go listen to it if you're interested. And one thing that I learned about soil is that soil is comprised of dead things from the past. Leaves from a previous season that fell, crumbled up. Feces from animals, bones from something that died, banana peels, compost. But somehow, when you bring all that together in the same space, 
And he planted a little seed in the midst of it. Jesus said that the word is a seed. You plant that little seed in the midst of this pile of stuff. Um, give it a little light and a little bit of water and a miracle grows. Something that's both beautiful and edible. And I started thinking like, there's the hope in that is that all of our broken relationships, all of the dead end roads, all of the prophetic words that didn't come to pass, all of the moves from one city to a new city that don't make sense, all of the lack of community in our own towns, all of the fill in the blank of whatever the lack is. When we come into a congregation like this of matted leaves and banana peels, and the seed of the word is planted in the middle of that guy. You know, something grows that, like Jesus said, be the biggest thing in the garden. The birds of the air will come and the, the Alsons will come and sit. That's what we get to do. That's what re-enchantment is, is, is providing a space for people to come and sit, to ask the questions together. Mother Teresa said about her prayer life, uh, she was interviewed and they said, what do you, what do, you do when you pray? And she said, I listen. And they said, well, what does God do? She said, he listens. See, here's the beautiful thing about this moment. When Jesus and his friends went out to talk to people, he used a particular language that the people understood. It was an agricultural culture, so he talked to them about agriculture. He talked to them in parables and, and metaphors and, and fiction stories that, that the culture understood. He spoke the language of the people. He's a God of 10,000 tongues. But then when they'd get back to the fire pit at night, one of the guys would say, Jesus, what the heck were you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean the kingdom of heaven is like X, 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 whatever, you know? Oh, well, this is what I meant. And then he would begin to explain it to them, you know? It was the family language. And so I think that one of the fun things about where we are right now in history as artists is that God is giving us new languages. We are all here because God has invited us into something with Him in our lives right now. Something that is amazing, something that people are going to look back on and they're, they're going to see things that we don't even know is happening right now. We're, I'm not waiting for a renaissance. I'm certainly not waiting for a, a, a revival. But I'm looking around and we, we are in the midst of, a, of some sort of tremor. Maybe I won't be so presumptuous to call it a renaissance, but we are in the midst of tremors. And I love it because the language of the church was never my first language. I had to figure that out. And I don't think I did a good job with it. Hallelujah, amen. But we are invited into a new language with the Holy Spirit. And we need gatherings like this because we can come together and encourage one another and realize that we're not crazy. But if we are crazy, we're crazy in good company. I wonder if Abraham felt crazy when he was called to go out and he didn't know where he was going. You know, he was following God. See, we know that, that this isn't working anymore. But for some of us, we know that this extreme over here is really not exactly where we want to be either. But there's this middle ground 
And that's the place that I feel that, the, that God has invited me to hold. Is it part of my stewardship? Is that I'm called to hold tension. I'm, I'm called to stand in the midst of the two spaces, you know? I love that space. It's messy and I love it. And I think we're all called in that space in some sense, invited to that space. And I feel like that there's a freedom for us to walk out in the new language, in the new metaphor. There's, a, there's an invitation from God to till the soil, to, to do the stuff. I mean, when we look at the Bible and we see Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, we have a very sanitized version of who they were. But these were performance artists doing weird stuff. <laughs> and we call it the Holy Bible. But when we talk about stories like they chopped up the person's body and mailed it to 12 different sides of Israel, you're not going to read that one to your kids before bed. But that's still part of the Holy Bible. That's true. And so I'm saying that what Flannery O'Connor said, for the almost blind, you, look, you draw large and startling figures, and for the hard of hearing, you shout. <laughs> her stories are dark and they're twisted, but she was motivated by her faith. And I think that God's invitation to us is for us to walk out into some things that may be Jesus in a different form. Peter thought it was a ghost and they were scared. But God invited him to do the impossible. God asked me a long time ago, he said, Stephen, are you willing to be misunderstood to go where I'm leading you? That was how he invited me into this path. Are you willing to be misunderstood to go where I'm leading you? And then the other question, the other thing he said is, creativity is the way forward for my, for my people. Well, at the time, I didn't realize that creativity meant uh, uh, that everything was going to fall apart first. <laughs> See, we are in a beautiful place. And I, and, and I think that what I want to do in my own life, and hopefully for the breath and the clay, and hopefully for you guys, is for us to begin to see that right where we are with all of the lack, the lack, whether it's lack of community, whether it's lack of encouragement, whether it's lack of money, lack of resources, lack of understanding, lack of ability to host big gatherings, lack of a, fill in the blank, that we begin to see that there's a loaf and two fishes. And when we hold up our inability, when we hold up our lack and we give thanks for it, that's where the miracle happens. This is the loaf and the two fishes. And let's hold it up with thanksgiving. And instead of having the mindset of poverty, of what we lack, of what we can't do, you know, all art is based off of embracing limitation. I mean, that piece of art exists because there are four sides to it. It exists within a space. So let's see our limitations as the canvas that God's given us to paint on right now rather than the thing that's hindering us from doing what we thought we were going to be doing right now. You know? We can turn this narrative on its head. We are the architects of hope for our generation, for the generations to come. And what that means is that we give thanks for the lack. I mean, He created the whole universe out of nothing, out of a word. What can we do? We are the poems of God. And I know that in my life, I was walking out a broken form of my destiny 
when Jesus found me. I was leading an art community. I didn't know the difference between Jesus, Allah, Buddha, or the chicken in the backyard. I come from the south. But I was leading an art community. And it was funny because my buddy, I was trying to have a little meeting like this, encouraging everybody. My buddy said, Steve, and I was getting so frustrated because they, they were just smoking weed and not doing anything. And I, was, I was like, guys, we've got to get our beep together. We called ourselves the movement. I was like, that has a couple of connotations there. We were definitely a movement. And we were full of some of that soil. You know what I'm talking about? We had some nutrients. All right, somebody got my joke. He said, Stephen, do you remember in school, they had the little the stool in the corner and the person had to wear the triangle hat? And I said, yes. And he was like, well, look around the room. We are all that person. <laughs> Anyways, we would go out to festivals and we would sell. We, this is what we'd do. We would, we would drink cheap wine from the grocery store, from the convenient mart, and then we would cover the empty bottles with candle wax and sell it for $2. And that's how we paid for rent on the little community house where we all lived at. And I had a studio at the time called Technical Difficulties Incorporated. <laughs> was the name of my studio. <laughs> and we would make little tapes, little five-song EP tapes of all the different musicians in our group. And the girls would make candles. And the house smelled really bad. <laughs> so I wore lots of patchouli. <laughs> but we, we were doing it you know what I mean we were doing it the reason I'm sharing that way is because I was living out a broken form of my destiny the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance right and you can't repent of who you are I've tried to repent of who I was early on I thought Jesus wanted me to make Hallmark greeting cards and bumper sticker poetry and like I, that didn't work reason I'm telling you that is because my heart breaks for the people that we all know that are living out broken forms of their destiny right now. And what if our heart and our art is to be the re-enchantment that gives them a doorway back into the question of God? What if our art gives them permission to have the questions that they didn't know they had permission to have? That's my heart. Those are the people that I break for. Who is your art meant to love? Who are the people that your art breaks for? Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and visit our official website at makersandmystics.com for our library of over 150 episodes. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.